0: Do you really want the Lord's way in your life? Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You know, so often we say Jesus is my Lord, but do we live in a way that says Jesus is my Lord? Or is it more accurate to say that we live in such a way to say that I am Lord of my life? Join me in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, which tells us of a time when God's people, whom he had saved from slavery in Egypt, found themselves not wanting the Lord's way, but their way, and just how God responded to that. Welcome to this episode of the His Hill Podcast. My name is Kelly Darty, and I'm your host, Again, we're in Numbers chapter 11, and I'm going to start by reading the first six verses. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taberah. "'because the fire of the Lord burned among them. "'The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. "'And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, "'Who will give us meat to eat? "'We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, "'the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks "'and the onions and the garlic. "'But now our appetite is gone.' There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. The word adversity in chapter 1 is is just an interesting word to me. It means affliction, grief, displeasure, sorrow, and distress. So actually what's going on here is that the people became like those who complain of sorrow or distress or grief, affliction. Really? Really? I mean, these are the same people who had recently witnessed the most powerful nation in the world at that time brought to its knees through the ten plagues and the crashing in of the Red Sea on top of its army. These are the people who had left Egypt with its plunder, the Bible says, who had been given God's presence in the cloud, and in the pillar of fire, who had been given access with a communion with God through the priesthood. These are people of adversity? I mean, how often when in unwanted circumstances do we lose sight of who we are in Christ, that we belong to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, Yet we will act as though we are people of adversity. We are people of affliction, of grief, displeasure, sorrow, and distress. I'm not saying that there aren't times that we will go through that are difficult, but these times are not to be the the definition of who we are. But the definition of who we are is the one that we belong to. These people are identifying with their situation and not their god we find also in verse 1 the fire of the lord burned the lord responds to this wrong attitude to this wrong identity with his fire you know god god often shows his presence by fire throughout scripture and always for the sake Of correction, are refining, are showing his truth. I'm thinking of passages like Exodus chapter 9 verses 23 to 24, and Leviticus chapter 9 verse 24, also in Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 to 2. We know that God shows himself in Acts chapter uh, 2 at the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit Uh, settles on each believer with tongues as of fire. But specifically, I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, which reads like this, According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So the believer is to be building upon Christ with that which is of value. What we build on the foundation of Christ will be tested by fire those who have built with wood hay straw with things that are not of value with things that are not of the lord but of ourself will be burned up the things that are built upon christ which is from the lord which is by faith will be tested again by fire And will be purified, will become of value, of more value, and of more benefit to correct and to refine. Again, in our text in verse 4, we find that some of the multitude there in the wilderness is described as being rabble. Now, who are the rabble? Well, it's possibly the non Hebrews who had left Egypt with them according to Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, and Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 3. And maybe they were the cause of the Hebrews' discontentment, but according to this same verse, the, the, the Hebrews were in agreement with the rabble in that they displayed greedy desires in verse 4. So we see that the rabble had greedy desires and also the sons of Israel wept again, and said, Who will give us meat to eat? This greedy desire makes me think of James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, which read like this, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. This greedy desire, something that has been a part of man since the fall. This life you live in Christ is not about how you want things to be. Those of you who are alumni will understand this illustration a little bit better. You know, in our fish house, which is the dining hall, we, um, we have a procedure. We come in, we sit down, we wait until the announcer uh, starts everything off uh, by uh, telling us, you know, what uh, we're eating, and then will tell us the, the order in which our tables will go up to get the food. And so, you know, that's kind of a daily occurrence here. And a lot of you alumni will remember it to be that way. Well, once we had a student decide he didn't want to wait any longer, but he wanted to eat now. So he just got up and went over. This was even before the announcer started things. He went up to the serving table and started to, to, to fill his plate. I was sitting in the dining area and I called him out. I said, hey, what are you doing? He said, I'm eating. I said, listen, sit down and wait for the rest of us. And he says, no, I've got things I have to do. I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and eat now. I said, no, sit down and wait for the rest of us. And he was really upset over this, that I would call him out in front of everybody. He would he wouldn't let go of it for years. He wouldn't let go of it. I heard of, you know, I heard of him visiting with other people and telling them, I can't believe Kelly got so upset with me over that. I think that's an incredible picture of us with the Lord. How upset we get. This is how I want it. This is how I know it to be better. This is the only way I can see it to be good. This is how it needs to be. This is how I want it to be. We have our own plan. And we can't get over the fact that the Lord would not abide by our plan. When we demand our own way, well, really what we're doing is rejecting the Lord. Verses 16 to 20 deal with this. And I will start reading in uh, verse 18. The Lord is speaking and he says to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat. For we were well off in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat And you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five, nor ten, nor twenty, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? Rejecting the Lord. For we were well off in Egypt, is what the people told God according to verse 18. We were well off in Egypt? It's amazing how we remember, our, it's amazing our selective memory of the past, isn't it? In Exodus chapter 1, you know, we get some, uh, some background on just what it was like for, um, for the nation of Israel, for the Hebrews. When we read in verse 11, So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. Then in verse 13, The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor, in mortar and bricks and in all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors, which they rigorously imposed on them. And then in verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile and every daughter you are to keep alive. Then in chapter 2 and verse 11, now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Well, It just sounds like it was a wonderful place to be, doesn't it? But that's what they claim. For we were well off at Egypt. Selective memory. Yeah, they ate well. But they didn't live well. In chapter 3 and verse 7, when God is speaking with Moses at the burning bush, again, this is in Exodus, chapter 3, verse 7, we read this, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. Yet, they claim that they lived well, they were well off in Egypt. It's amazing how we will so easily block out the bad of our past in order to justify our decisions for the present. I remember once a couple coming to me and uh, wanting me to uh, officiate their wedding. And I knew them. They were friends of mine. Arlene and I had witnessed their relationship. It was an on and off, on and off, on and off relationship. They were constantly fighting. And I mean all the time. Fighting, and so it was very concerning to us that th- that they would want to that they would want to take this kind of relationship toward marriage. And so, instead of giving them an answer right away when they asked me to officiate the wedding, I invited them to come to the house that night, and we would sit down and just talk about this. I started the conversation by asking the question: "You are, are, are making the statement and ending with a question." you know, you guys have really spent your time together, mostly fighting. Why do you think it's a good idea to get married? The the man said, well, now when we get into a fight, I just drop her off at her home and I can just leave. But when we get married, we'll be under the same roof and we'll have to deal with it. And Arlene just exploded. And she said, are you kidding me? What is it do you think marriage brings that magically fixes all the problems that you're going to bring into it? You see, all they could look at and and, and just see, oh, this is good and this is wonderful. I like this part. But just ignoring the, the, the glaring characteristic of their relationship, the life of their relationship. And it was hard to do, and it broke their heart but I told them I can't do this I can't officiate this because I do not think this is this is wise and uh they they were upset about it and they were upset with me understandably and they got somebody else to to officiate and I and I don't, I'm not saying this to gloat at all but really it breaks my heart to say it that their relationship only lasted about three years and they divorced The groom came to me after. The husband came to me after. Uh, Looked for me, found me, took me out to eat. We sat there, and he just looked at me, and he got somber, and he says, Kelly, you were right. And I looked at him, and I said, there's never been a time I've wanted more, so much to be wrong. Our selective memory. Remembering the good, but forgetting the whole. And this is what they're remembering. They remember the good, but they've forgotten the whole. So often, I think, as we live our life, we remember what we would call the good of our flesh. But we forget the whole of our flesh we forget that really there's nothing good in us that is in our flesh, like Paul says. And in doing so, when we choose to live according to what we have forgotten, really what we're doing is rejecting the Lord. In verse 20 of our text, it says this, but a whole month, so they're going to eat for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because... You have rejected the Lord. You have rejected the Lord. You you abhor him. You It means you have cast him away or cast him off. Man, that's sobering to me. That we would live this way. That we would actually do this. That it's within us to do this. Well, who did they reject? Who did they cast off? Again, if you keep reading in verse 20, it says this. They cast off the Lord who is the word here among them among you the word among it means the nearest part or maybe the center it makes me think of passages like matthew chapter 28 and verse 20 teaching them to observe all that i commanded you and lo i am with you always jesus says even to the end of the age And again, in John 14, verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you in the context of promising the sending of the Holy Spirit. And Hebrews 13, in verse 5, again, we read of the Lord, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He is there. He is the nearest part, right in the center. This life in Christ is not about my rule, but God's rule in Christ. I have a friend who was going through a very dark time in his life. His dad was a very godly man who was also a successful businessman. My friend's business was falling apart, and he refused to ask his dad for advice. My friend went into deep depression. He had to go on medication just to enable him to sleep a little bit at night. He refused to talk to his dad and get some help. Even though his dad lived next door. Now, at his lowest point, he was at work and just overcome with what was going on. He stepped out, sat down on the curbside, and he gave me a call. We talked about what was going on. Mostly I just listened and then we prayed. You know, finally, he let his dad know how bad things were. His dad came over sat down, and he looked through my friend's books, business books, and he started to see a way out of the problem. As a result, my friend's business benefited greatly from his dad's advice. This is what my friend told me as he was sharing with me what he had learned in going through this, and he said this, I had a wealth of knowledge living next door, but my arrogance kept me from it. I wanted my way, is what he was basically saying. And it made his, his way made him reject what he had next door. Made him reject what he needed for so long. Do we do the same thing with Jesus? We have this wealth in our midst. As it says here, among us, at the center? And do we, in our arrogance, reject? In our greed, reject just what has been made available to us in Christ? Where rejection is found, another common theme throughout Scripture is that the Lord must respond. We find the striking of the Lord in verses 31 to 35. And, and I refer to the striking of the Lord because specifically of verse 33. But let's, let's read all the verses, 31 to 35. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side. All around the camp and about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. The people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people so again a fire, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kebroth-Hatava, because there they buried the people who had been greedy. From Kebroth-Hatava, the people set out to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. Okay, so we've got cubits and homers. (laughs) Well, what exactly is a cubit in a homer? Just how much quail was there? Well, according to verse 31, it was about two cubits deep, or they, the the quail was about two cubits deep. Now, what does that mean? Well, a cubit is approximately 18 inches. So that means there would have been 36 inches high of quail, or or over 914 millimeters, if that, that helps you. I mean, th- this is incredible. I, I can't imagine this, and it would appear that as it uh, as I'm reading this, that there would be so many that it would stretch out a day's journey from the camp in either in any direction. And what's a homer? Well, okay. So they say that the one who gathered the least gathered at um, well at least uh, ten homers. Well, approximately. A homer equals 11 bushels. So the least that was gathered was about 80 gallons or over 302 liters of quail. I mean, and that was the least. My goodness, how much, you know, just how powerful God is, how incredible he is. And so this is what is laid before them, but it's for their discipline. Because we find in verses 31 to 34, the outcome is Kebroth Hatava. What does that mean? Kebroth Hatava, found in verse 34. So the name of that place was called Kebroth Hatava. Well, it means the graves of greediness are the graves of lust. Warren Wiersbe's commentary on this section uh, was interesting. He made this statement. Those graves were a monument to the danger of praying. Not thy will, but my will be done. That's a very sobering thought. Be careful how you pray. In verse 33, we see how the Lord executed his discipline. While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, The anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. And then in verse 20, back in verse 20, we get some more detail of it that they had to eat so much of it for so long that it began to be to come up through their nostrils until it comes out of your nostrils. Verse 20 So in other words, they were literally puking it up through their nose. What was the purpose of this discipline of the Lord? Well, I think Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a good understanding of why the Lord would discipline. I'm going to start in verse 4. For you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. And so this whole idea today of disciplining, not in a way that doesn't bring pain, is unbiblical. Because the Lord's discipline was painful. It did not bring joy, but, according to verse 11, sorrow. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So we see the purpose of God's discipline in verse 10. It brings about his holiness. In verse 11, it brings about his peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's not abuse. Don't misunderstand me. Not abuse. But discipline, an act of love for the good of the one being disciplined. Abuse is for the good of the one who's abusing. Discipline is for the good of the one being disciplined. And what was the result of the Lord's discipline? Well, we go on to verse 35. And here, I think we see the outcome. And so what is the outcome of the Lord's discipline? Well, I think we find it in verse 35. From Kabbathatava, the people set out for Hazaroth. And they remained at Hazaroth. The outcome of the Lord's discipline, that they would move on toward the land of rest for which he saved them for. You see, he saved them from Egypt that they might enter into rest. He saved them from the slavery of Egypt, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, that they might enter into the land of rest. He disciplines them that they may continue on toward this rest. This is throughout scripture, that the Lord, what the Lord has for us and the discipline involved in realizing what he has for us. One passage that I really, oh, I was hesitant to use because I really, it's just used so much, and I think so often out of context. So I'll, I'm going to use it. And hopefully you'll hear what I have to say about the context of it. It's a verse that really I think I've heard in our devotion times from students more than any other verse, and sometimes, if not often, out of context. And that verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. Now here's the thing. So often this verse is used with the encouragement that God's going to make everything just great. And yeah, He will. But what do you mean by that? Do you mean that, you know, you're in this horrible, hurtful thing and the Lord's just going to fix that and make it the way you want it to be? the way you envision things to be. It's going to be a smooth road. Listen, the context of this is the context of rebellion, of disobedience. The reason they're having to be told told this, the nation is having to be told this, is because their disobedience has, has progressed to the point that they now need to be disciplined. And they're going to be crushed, destroyed, and brought into slavery. And in that place of slavery... If they will repent, if they're, when they come to that point of repenting, then he will what? He will enact what he has always intended them to know, welfare, hope. But listen, it's not our desire. It's not our expectation of welfare and hope. It's the welfare and hope that he has always intended for us from creation. His very image, his life, his completeness, his good, his glory. And this is where we find welfare. This is where we find hope. Romans eight twenty eight another passage that we just uh, I think we take out of context and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those whom who love God to those who are called according to His purpose and we get so excited about this He's causing all things to work together for good in the context of what we're looking at right now and in in, 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 um, in our passage all the good is that He's gonna you know oh He's gonna give us the food that we want and we say oh they're crazy but what about us He's going to give me the marriage I want. He's going to give me the job I want. He's going to give me the health that I want. Wait a minute. Is that his good? Is that what he's about? Is he all about your glory? Or is he all about his glory? And I, oh guys, we want him to be about his glory because it is his glory that we find our good. We find our welfare. We find our hope. Why do I say this? Because in the very next verse, Romans 8.28 is what I just read, but 8.29 tells us what his good is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. This is his good, Jesus Christ himself. This is God's good, Jesus. And this is what we were created for. This, this is our welfare. This is our hope. Not having the things the way we want them to be but having them the way he designed them to be. And in James chapter one and verse four, the context is in the middle of trials. And what do we do in these things? Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the result of his discipline. This is the result of his trials. What? To be made perfect and complete. That word complete is the same word that Paul uses in Colossians 2, verse 10. In him you have been made complete. In Christ you have been made complete. So the end result of the trial is that Christ be seen and not us. This is our welfare. This is our hope. Jesus. Have you puked yet? Have you thrown up through your nose? Arlene and I were still newly married, had only been married for two or three years. I had graduated from Bible college and I couldn't find a position anywhere. I was distraught, worn out, had been living on my own strength, trusting myself to be like Jesus. And I had done such a good job of it that I got a Bible education and got a degree, but couldn't find a position. And I looked hard. I was so destroyed, so devastated that I had just come to the end of myself. I was used up. And it was at that point that the Lord was able to show himself to me for all that he was in Christ. And I came to realize that I had been made complete in Jesus. There was nothing more to add. There was nothing that I could depend on upon myself. I I needed Jesus for all that he was. And that was more than enough for all that I needed. I was so excited about this, to come to the realization that this is God's will, Jesus, his life in me, I got so excited about what that was going to mean. I decided myself what that would look like. And I thought, well, you know what? I can't find a position anywhere for vocational ministry. So I think what I need to do is uh, we, we need to, we were, we were living in Canada. We need to move back to my home state of Louisiana and get involved in the denomination that I grew up in. It's the biggest non-Catholic denomination. There'll be more opportunity, be more jobs there for me to, 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 to be able to find one. And I shared this with Arlene. She says, well, Kelly, if you think that's what the Lord's doing, let's do it. And I said, I do think it's what the Lord's doing. Let's pray. Do you ever do that? Do you ever decide what God's will is? Really, you're deciding what your will is, and then you pray? God bless this. Be careful how you pray. Are you praying your will be done or my will be done? Well, we went on with it. We moved back, and within a matter of weeks, I had found a position. And it came so easy. It was uh, a church was looking for uh, somebody to fill a position that just seemed like I was perfect for that position. They brought me in. It was uh, at at first glance it was a wonderful fit. Within hours of being there, things started to fall apart, and it got tough. I don't want to go into how black it was, but it was very dark. Arlene and I could not believe the situation that we were in. And though there were some bright points there, there were uh, th- there were people there that we built solid relationships with and who were a true encouragement in the Lord. As a whole, the church was in a bad place. And I remember sitting there one night and I I, I just don't want to go into all of it, but there was so much coming at us. I remember sitting there one night and thinking, I did this. I did this. I had come to realize that This life in Christ did not depend on me. It depended on Christ. Makes sense, doesn't it? And so then I went ahead and decided what that life, not my life, his life, would be like. Not my life, but his life would look like. Not my life, but his life would be lived. I had it all messed up. And I put my wife and I into this situation that was really bad. I remember praying that night, saying, Lord, I see what I can do. I'm too afraid to try and fix it now. I trust you. And we had to stay there for two years, but the Lord started to work. Toward the end of those two years, Arlene and I had gone on vacation. We came out here to Texas, and part of it was visiting at his hill. My brother was on staff, and I told him what was going on. My brother looked at me, and he says, do you know the story of the Hebrews, in the desert, between Egypt and the land of rest. Do you know the story of them with the quail? I said, yeah, I know it. And he said, do you know what happened to them in eating that quail? And I said, no, I don't remember. And he says, well, listen to this. They were right where the Lord had put them. They had been rescued from Egypt On their way to the land of rest. Right where the Lord had put them. And they decided that the provision of the manna. Was not what they wanted. They wanted more. So God gave them what they wanted. And he looked at me and says. Do you know what happened to them? I said no what? He said they had to eat that meat. Until they puked it up through their nose. Kelly. It could be that the Lord's going to leave you right where you are in that situation until you have puked it up through your nose. You were right where the Lord would have you be. And you decided that you wanted something else. You know, I'll never know what the Lord was going to do with us where we were because I decided we needed to be somewhere else. And the Lord gave us that. Be careful how you pray. Are you praying, Lord, my will be done, not your will be done? It was just a little bit after that, just a couple of weeks really, that a friend of mine came up to me that I had shared this story with. And he said, Kelly, have you puked yet? And I said, I think I have. And he said, I think you have, too. And I think the Lord's going to move you on. And it was just days from then that Charlie McCall called me. And he says, Kelly, I was wondering, would you and Arlene like to come to his hill? What a lesson. What a lesson for me to learn. Are you at that place Of demanding your way if so are you ready to puke I hope so because if you're not ready for Christ to have his way in you then you're not ready to move on to what he has for you his welfare his hope all that he is remember keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Thanks for listening.
1: Thank you for listening to today's devotional with Kelly Doherty. We hope it was able to challenge you and encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Registration for the 2022 Thanksgiving conference is open now. Our speakers this fall will be the director of Torchbearers International, Peter Reed, and the former director of Capernay Australia, Peter Thomas. We would love to have you join us for a week of fellowship, good food, and time spent in God's word. Please head on over to our website at hishill.org to register. Our second year students arrived yesterday, which means the first years will be arriving in just a few days to officially kick off this new school year. Like I mentioned last week, Prayer for our incoming student body would be much appreciated as they all begin this new journey in this new place. Please pray especially for their hearts, that they would leave behind past hurts and arrive here ready to hear and absorb God's truth. Thank you again for tuning in to the His Hill podcast. You've been listening to our host, Kelly Doherty, and his devotional on Numbers chapter 11. Be encouraged, alumni. He is for you. Remember to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. I'm Lizzie, and we'll see you next week.